never ceases to amuse me when you keep bringing up the Long Island Ice Tea as your cocktail of choice. It is literally the strongest cocktail you can get on any menu, isn't it? <laughs> Welcome to Cloud Realities, a conversation show exploring the practical and exciting alternate realities unleashed through cloud-driven transformation. I'm Dave Chapman. I'm Shao Kazal. And I'm Rob Kernahan. And we are back with the first episode of Season 3. Summer seemed to whiz by and in a blur of grey skies here in the UK, but I speak somewhere around mid-September and it's absolutely overwhelmingly hot. So having sat Too all hot, summer... <laughs> Too hot, <laughs> just absolutely mental this all summer it's been like drizzly and borderline cold and it was when i was in a tent in cornwall for two weeks where was this hot weather then rob kernahan that's the question i've got <laughs> it wasn't following you that was for sure yeah no, over the summer period shalkia who missed on some of the live shows that we did as specials over the summer has yeah. been moving house so shalk we've missed you yeah. welcome back thank you thank you tell us a little bit about the house move then it was quite a project, yeah. It was only four kilometers away, but it was quite a project. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't matter how you move house, how far, it's like an incredible thing. If you've lived in a house for more than about five years, the amount of crap you accumulate and then you find random stuff on the way, it's just horrible. Yeah, it is. Know, yeah. It is really horrible, yeah. Yeah, I got surprised on each level of the uh, of the house. Yeah. What was your favorite thing that you found, like buried at the back of somewhere that you even forgot you'd had, and you're like, oh, oh I remember having. I was excited about this at one point. Oh, that's a very good question. There were not very much exciting things. I did found an old crib somewhere in the corner of the attic. And we actually moved that as well because it has some emotional. Uh, oh, so you, you couldn't get, you couldn't let go of it. <laughs> no. <laughs> Just take everything with, it. even though you know you don't need it, or you'd buy a new one or whatever. You stay well, just in case. Yeah, it's the just yeah. in case mentality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Pick it in a box, it'll be fine. I'll just take this out of the corner of the attic that we haven't looked at for 20 years, and I'll go and put it in another corner of a, a new corner. A new, yeah. Every year. <laughs> And Rob, what was your highlights over the summer? Did you have fun? Uh, well, we went, uh, we went, uh, took the family karting into theme parks and things like that. So we oh, you said a, that was the thing you were looking at. What was the big ride that you enjoyed most? Uh, uh, so, uh, Smiler at Alton Towers, 16 loops in short succession, the most loopy roller coaster in the world, uh, still officially. And you come off it and you're a bit wibbly wobbly. Is it though, is it smooth? So, I like the ones that are doing all of that, but they're smooth. But the ones that are doing that, maybe they're a bit older. And they just throw you around the whole place. It, it's pretty smooth, but it's sixteen loops in a in like just a couple of minutes, and there's two stages, so it's unrelenting, shall we say? You know you've been on it when you get off. There's no doubt of what you've just been through. And then we went up, saw um, up to see the fjords, and a massive storm ripped through Norway at the same time. So that was a bit bumpy on the way up. Yeah, that's a, that. You don't want to be on a boat in a situation like and that. I, I, uh, I actually went up to uh, apparently one of the most beautiful places in the world. Uh, with the best view in Norway and all I saw was cloud. Uh, <laughs> I've seen a picture so- of you standing in front of that view. <laughs> it looks like you could be standing, you know, at the bus stop just down the road from my house. <laughs> you wouldn't know I could yeah. have been at a bus stop. But anyway, uh, them's the breaks, but uh, it was relaxing and restful. Well, welcome back, everybody. We are kicking off season three, so we have got a lot of good stuff to come between now and Christmas. But let's get going with something a little bit new. So Rob and I talk regularly. And there's generally something that's confusing him about the world. He is that type of chap. And sometimes he might even have a point. So what we thought we'd do each week is just have a look at what's confusing Rob. So Rob, what's confusing you this week? Well, this week, David, I'm mainly confused by terms and conditions and why there isn't more outrage in the world about what's going on. So you've got video platform providers, you've got browsers, you've got social media platforms, and they're releasing terms and conditions that are, quite frankly, a massive encroachment on personal data. So it's not the what's in the terms and conditions. I've read them and now I am baffled by them. It's more the all the stuff that's getting snuck into them that 
actually is very compromising from a from a data security point of view. But we just let it go. Yeah, and I just people just clicking accept. In fact, browsers are updating themselves and resetting the terms and conditions switches that you switch off not to share your data and stuff. And it's being reported on. Uh, the tech press is talking about it, and I can't believe there isn't more outrage in society. People are just clicking accept. And the bit I don't get is why? Why? It's like we've gone over a hump and nobody cares about the personal data anymore. Back in the day, in the very early days of the internet, people would be outraged by this. There'd be so much, I'm not doing that. And now it's just yeah. like, yeah, accept, accept, accept. People have got bored of the scrolling. You're just overwhelmed by it. I mean, a lot. I think a lot of the downside of things like the regulation that came in the, in the, in the EU that meant that you had to accept all cookie use and such like for every single website you pretty much go to. With fatigue. Me, yeah, it means you, you, you're clicking accept all like 20 times a day, aren't you? Yeah, you don't even have the time to read all those terms and conditions, right? No, oh, right. They're using it for AI algorithms and all sorts of stuff and it's been quite scary. So I think going back to the social reset, I think there'll be an event uh, around terms and conditions that'll be just the bridge too far for many, but um, still can't believe we've allowed it to go this far. Well, let's keep track on that, Rob, and uh, we'll hear next week what's confusing you then. So this week on the show, though, we're going to be talking about change management. Not just good program management, but how do you lead change when what you have in front of you is exceptionally daunting. And the reason we want to look at this at the opening show is we think that we've gone through a period of, you know, ever increasing change and ever accelerating change. And when you look ahead from where we are today, and we talked about this a lot last season, we have got obviously AI is now the big conversation of the moment. You have other technologies like quantum coming along very shortly, and it's going to lead to a series of accelerated transformations on the back of already complex transformations like cloud transformation and digital transformation and many other different types of transformation. So how on earth do you hold yourself together when you're dealing with change that daunting on a week-by-week basis? And I'm delighted to say that joining us this week to talk about that is Erwin Visser, General Manager for Cloud Service Provider Business in Microsoft Americas, but also someone who's been on a very special adventure recently, and that adventure might frame for us a little bit this conversation. So Erwin, thank you so much for joining us. Do you want to just introduce yourself and say hello? Yes, thank you. Uh, great to have me on this, uh, on this podcast. Uh, as you mentioned, my name is uh, Erwin Visser, and I, uh, I work for Microsoft in Americas, and I, I lead the uh, cloud service provider business for uh, for the Americas region. In my accent, you can hear that I'm not originally American. I'm uh, I'm from Amsterdam, but uh, moved 15 years ago to the the worldwide Microsoft organization, and what was supposed to be a two-year, three-year experience turned out to be uh, a 15-year thing at this moment. So, Erwin. Paint a picture for us. So you are approaching the mountain for the first time and you've walked up to base camp. Just paint for us what that looks like and what was going through your mind as you were approaching such a big challenge. Yeah, Dave, that's a, that's a really good question. And I, it is when you, when you see Mount Everest for the first time, you, you feel excited because uh, it's it's the it's the first time that you really see the the mountain at that size and something you have been visualizing and dreaming of for uh, for weeks and months and maybe years. Hmm. But second is that uh, you also have this feeling of being overwhelmed. Uh, the the summit of Everest is like it's peaking above any other mountain around it, and and when I saw it for the first time, you could see the jet stream just like hitting that summit. And it's, it's so you, you, you kind of like feel also like, how do I ever get there? And how do humans ever get there? And it's, the, it's this overwhelming feeling of understanding the challenge that you signed up against. Let's take how you actually then pushed into it in chunks. So clearly the first chunk was to actually get to base camp and get yourself established. I'm sure in in advance you spent a lot of time planning and thinking about it, but it must have felt different in the 
you know, in the moment when you're actually there. So what was that first night at base camp like? Sorting through your thoughts, the emotional reaction you're having to the to the new big challenge. What was that first night like? The the first night was still, I think, a lot of like positive anticipation about uh, about everything that is coming, mm-hmm. and and to to break down a Mount Everest expedition, I I think about it in uh, in in three different chapters or or parts, and so the the first part is the hike up to base camp. And so you first of all fly to uh, Kathmandu, the capital of Nepal, uh, and then two days later you you fly into Lukla, which is the start of the Kumbu Valley. And from the from Lukla, it's approximately 10, 12 days, dependent on your pace, up to uh, up to base camp. That alone is mad. Like a like a twelve day hike on, in any other circumstances is a fairly substantial undertaking. It's all right, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's hey, and you have trained a lot had to get there. So you, you're. Uh, I was not too concerned about my uh, my physical uh, fitness getting getting up to base camp. Although uh, people do get sick, and sometimes people need to be helicoptered out. I felt really, really good up to uh, to base camp, and it, it felt a little bit like a vacation. Uh, you you walk up from uh, tea house to tea house. Uh, you don't sleep in tents yet, which and you you have still have like a, a, a normal restroom and. Uh, one uh, one out of three uh, tea houses even had a shower, so uh, you you feel like you're doing an, a bit of a uh, uh, vacation trip, like an, a, a trek up to base camp, and you enjoy the environment and uh, and the culture. When you hit base camp, that's the first time I really felt the altitude, because yeah, base camp is uh, uh, at seventeen thousand feet or five and a half thousand meters, and if you look around the world, there is no location on the planet where people live at that altitude. And there is a really good reason for it because you have 50% of the oxygen. So you, you, don't, you, you don't feel really great mentally and physically when you are at the in-base camp. And in base camp, you start with, the, um, with getting yourself really acclimatized for the, for the Everest summit. And that's a uh, four-week process approximately where you do uh, acclimatization hikes and uh, you also do two rotations in total there are three rotations or are, are at least our team did uh, three rotations and so your first rotation is to camp two the second rotation is to camp three and then that's and then you you should be acclimatized and totally prepared for the final summit rotation uh, up to camp four, ideally the summit, and then going back to uh, back to base camp. So it's that's how I kind of think about the three parts. And the first part was uh, the the trek, yeah, beautiful environment, and a lot of anticipation of what is coming. Right, and in terms of what's coming, then when you're actually looking at the challenge ahead of you and preparing for it in the way you've described. Tell us a little bit about your team. What team did you have around you at the beginning of the journey? What kind of conversation were you having with the team? How aligned were you on the journey? We started with uh, eight climbers and uh, later a few others uh, came in and uh, and some people had a different uh, schedule. But uh, yeah, you get pretty close to the eight climbers. Because you spend a lot of time together uh, as well at night in the tea houses uh, and dinners, as well as uh, in the trek. Uh, so you, you, you get to really know each other very well. One of the interesting aspects of climbing in general, uh, but especially Everest, is that people lose their, their filters. And people can really do the core of their character. There's, uh, if you if you're exhausted, tired, thirsty, and you're cold, there's not a lot of things that you can filter out of your personality. You become pretty pure, and and so that that's a so you really get to know p- people very well. You, you also have a naturally aligning north star or mission, don't you? Uh, you know, it's very very clear what yes. you guys want to achieve together. Yeah, you're you're very focused, and I. So two of the cl- uh, climbers that we started with had done Everest before, and, and they both didn't make it at the end, and so they wanted to try it for the second time. One tried it for the third time, um, and so you, you really want to start understanding like what their experience was, but you also want to learn from them in like what 
what make them not succeed? So, because you, you want to not fall in the same trap, ideally. And that must be really important and almost calming in a way if you meet somebody who's done it before and they tell you about how they achieved it i suppose you can check and balance against your preparation and everything i mean there's so many factors in such a an undertaking but but was that calming to meet people who'd done it before who were going with you again did that have any or or was it still didn't really dent the nerves of what you're about to undertake yeah i i think i i think it's it's you could say it's calming i i do think when you st- start an adventure like Everest, you have to build the self-trust yeah. that you don't, that you, and your positive thinking that you don't get like uh, influenced by any external factors easily. Because yeah, you, you go through like very sketchy terrain. Uh, there are a lot of moments where there's, you go to a high risk environment, like the, and like business can be in high risk environment, but the worst thing that can happen is you make a mistake and you could fi- be fired. And in Everest, a mistake would be your death. And so you you have to really build some kind of like wall in, uh, around your and, and positive thinking that you don't get influenced easily by other people. You wanna you wanna you wanna understand their learnings so you can adjust your strategy or approach but you yeah you you have to you have to have like a high level of self-trust to to start something like this so you've set off then on the journey you're now heading up the mountain so you're base camp and then you're at camp one camp two clearly things going well so give us a give us a sense of what those initial journeys like and where i want to get to really here is what happens when pressure starts to exert itself clearly you're doing this from a point of view of wanting to enjoy the journey, but actually, you know, you need to summit, you know, you've only got a certain amount of time once you're on the mountain. So you've got a time, you've got a time pressure that's acting on you almost straight away, like right from the outset. So tell us a little bit about the journey, but also tell us about how you're managing against the time pressure. Yeah, there's so much to share on this point. It, it, it was interesting for me, as, especially in retrospect, that uh, I was I was positive and I, uh, and things. Uh, you do a few days of training in uh, in base camp, and I felt really good about it. But then the first time we went through the uh, had the famous uh, Kumbu Icefall, and to get from base camp to camp one, you have to cross the Kumbu Icefall, and it, it's you have probably seen pictures, but that is. Where uh, the the Kumba Icefall is is a is a river of ice. It uh, it moves around three feet a day. Uh, there are a special group of Sherpas that uh, create a route through it, which is probably one of the most dangerous jobs in the world. And so they call them the 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 Icefall Doctors. So they create like a route for climbers through the icefall, and they update that on an, uh, on a regular basis because the ice is moving. It's the Kumba Icefall is probably one of the most risky parts of climbing Everest. And I had, I had some kind of feeling that I was kind of excited to go through it, but that was a, a complete wrong assessment because it was hard. It was uh, the first time I think it took me 12 to 14 hours. I forget the exact time. And I was really, when I arrived in Camp One, I was totally exhausted. And that was like an... Uh, for me, was was like an, a wake-up moment that, hey, this is going to be really, really hard. And in that pressure situation, what are you doing to self-manage? So you, there's a couple of dynamics going on, I suspect. The first is, how is the team coping in a pressure situation that is frankly slightly dicier than you expected it to be? And then how are you self-managing in that situation to, I don't know, I guess, stay positive and stay focused on the on the summiting element of it, but what's going on in there? Yeah, I, I think that, so on that first time, it was a grind and I made mistakes because it's, I, I realized that I had to manage my own hydration better. I had to manage my own food situation better. I was, I think, one of the slowest in that day. Uh, and, and so there, you can, you can imagine that you're in a situation with 10 other climbers and so, and you know, there's no competition to be the first in camp one, but you're still measuring yourself against other climbers. Sure. And so, sure. Uh, seeing myself struggle that day, being made well, maybe one of the slowest, uh, really was like a reset moment for me. During during the day, 
Uh, I one of the things I learned through climbing is that you you really have to set short goals for yourself. And, uh, and it's not just for the whole expedition, but it's even on an on a one day thing like going through the Kuma Icefall. Yeah, you cannot if you just realize where you have to go to that day. It it is overwhelming. It feels like it's it's far. And so what you have to do is think about like I'm gonna take a I'm gonna take a, a quick rest and a sip of drink in 45 minutes from now, and I'm just gonna go keep going till uh, in the next 45 minutes. And you don't try to think too much about what's going to happen after that 45 minutes and that sip of drink and that quick rest. You really focus on getting to that rest point. And then you you get through your rest point and you, you create like another quick call in your mind that is more reachable, right? like make maybe an hour away or an hour and a half away. Could be like a hill, could be a point in the, in the, in the distance, or maybe it's against a, a time slot. But you want to set for yourself these smaller goals because these, these smaller goals give you a uh, hand. It, it, it gives you like a shot of dopamine. So you feel really good about yourself when you hit that, uh, that destination. And it, it gets your mind out of what you have to do that whole day. And so is that how you are managing your mental resilience throughout all of this, which is you think about it very explicitly you create a framework for yourself and even even through the the more difficult and testing periods you're constantly checking yourself against various different things so rather than i'm laboriously crawling through this ice field with a vertical chasm of ice on either side of me and trying to look right to the top of the mountain and think god that looks like a long way yeah and and, and clearly there's a lot of like uh, connection points here with uh, with real life or not climbing life uh, is that uh, in a lot of situations you can feel overwhelmed as a person and, and breaking down this, this big goal in smaller chunks that just show progress and celebrate progress is a real good process to get through it. And how did you find your emotions changing on the way? Did they cycle quickly on the path about this exertion, small goals, moving on, or were they large, you know, large changes in emotions that took days to to cycle, what, what, what was, you know, you're going through this really hard pace, the realizations kicking in, you know, what was it like from um, a mental health perspective and the ability to cope? You, you, you stay super focused. I, I created, I was able to create like an, uh, an very intentional focus in myself for, uh, especially I would say the last three, four weeks of the expedition and that focus and intention, uh, or that it was so much that, when I was off the mountain, I could not sleep for a week, weirdly enough, because it was very hard for me to get rid of it. You really yeah, put yourself in a, in a, in a, in a mindset where you, you really want to like, get very intentional about everything you do and really focus and, and really uh, don't get distracted. Um, the, the, the two things eh, that I feel were really important for helping me in, in keeping, eh, keeping this, uh, mental resilience and is, is one I mentioned already is positive thinking. And you really cannot create any self doubt. It's a self doubt is just not helpful. Uh, you, you have to trust your training, your experience. And even if it, if you're overestimated, it's better to overestimate it in an, in an intentional way than having any self-doubt. There, there are these, these moments where it's, it's really sketchy. And like we, we had to cross like, uh, uh, some of the, uh, the, the, the glacier, uh, gasms that were like three, four letters, like taped against each other. And you have to walk over them. And it's, it's technically not hard. And it's really not super hard to do, but. If you are on a ladder that is like bouncing and shaking and you look down and there is like, but is it uh, 500 meters of nothing or 400 meters of nothing, then uh, you have to really not get it into your head and you have to trust that you can just keep going and, and, and stay in that uh, in the, uh, and keep your, your focus walking over it. The, the second that helped me is uh, visualization. I've in my job at Microsoft, I've done a lot of like large presentations and uh, large scale presentation announcements. And I, I always use visualization in those moments because it just helps you to prepare for what's coming. I f- it felt that like visualization was also a great technique for climbing Mount Everest because 
and visualizing the night before when you're in your sleeping bag, like, hey, I'm going to cross those ladders, like how I'm going to approach this. There will be this, this vertical wall that I have to climb through. Like, what is the, how will I do it? What will be my first steps? Uh, that really helps you to be more confident in the moment that you reach the, uh, the, the, the blocker or the, ob- or, or the objective. Very good. So we'll come on to what it's like to actually reach the summit in a second. But I think as we've gone on that journey and just had a, had a sense of what it was like for you, I think you've covered five or six pretty important self-management and change management pieces of advice. So it seems to me that knowing your team around you, the importance of teamwork and the importance of aligned purpose really struck me on that. Staying calm and focused under pressure, which, you know, we all have on a day-to-day basis, I think it's put into sharp focus when you're on a bouncing ladder, you know, 500 meters above a, a plunging chasm, wherein the third element of staying calm and focused under pressure and actually understanding what pressure means to you, how you're managing that and how you're staying positive in those sorts of situations and what you need to do to prepare. You know, the the act of climbing Everest itself provides a great analogy for the sorts of things that we do because it naturally breaks up into sort of day-long chunks and taking each day as you go along. And then finally, being very, very conscious of mental health and resilience, trusting your training, not letting self-doubt creep in as you're going along. seems to me there's many lessons in life that can be applied to the sort of challenges we deal with on a daily basis, Erwin. Yeah, and the the one thing I want to add on the uh, and the great points that you make here, Dave, is that I mentioned it, but I think it's such an important point is the focus on what you control. Hmm. There's a lot when you like. First of all, I will be the like to get to the summit uh, of Everest. Uh, it's uh, it clearly it requires uh, training and preparation, but you also have to be lucky. You really ha- yeah, like you have to have luck on your side. There are elements that you don't control and you have to be lucky that they they're not going south uh in in at the wrong moment uh during the climb and one of course is weather and we were really lucky with the, with the weather especially on the, the our summer day but secondly is that when when you go through the icefall there is a lot of like objective dangers and right. variables that you don't control like uh ice towers can collapse um, you avalanches, you walk in a very high danger, high uh, risk uh, uh, point for uh, for avalanches because you kind of like walk in a valley between on one side, uh, Nutsi and on the other side, uh, Everest. And so if you start getting too like uh, focused on the things around you that you don't control, you can really get distracted and you lose your energy. Maybe you lose your focus. Um, and so staying focused on the things you control and what you can do to to be safe and and just ignore everything around you and it's, it's probably not an uh, a thing i would say normally too much but it, it's it's the it's kind of a self-defense mechanism but it also and by focusing on your control you, um, and i read some uh, some books about this and studies is that people that focus on their control are also coming faster into action have a have a higher impacts and also on a higher uh, ability to set priorities you're almost wasting energy thinking about things that will have no tangible outcome for you as the individual whilst you're doing this trip so you've got to use all the capacity you've got at the task at hand because the task at hand is so incredible that what you're undertaking you can't waste any time thinking about things that you just can't in fact, and I think a, lo- a lot of people get consumed by that in, in life generally, don't they? And it's a bit more about the fortitude to, f- to focus on the here and now and do what you need to do to get to the next step than it is about worrying about what might be around the corner or things you can't control, like you say, the weather. If the weather yeah. goes wrong, there's nothing you can do about it. That's just the way it is. Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a Dutch expression about this, which I never found a real great English translation, but it says that uh, people suffer more from their fears than from the things that happened in their lives. It says so yeah. you're, you're suffering by your fears uh, versus what, what really the consequences could be. It's, it's not helpful. Uh, clearly, it's not helpful. It's, not, uh, uh, it's, it's wasted energy, as you said, uh, Rob. Indeed, yeah. indeed. And maybe just to bring our conversation about what it's like tackling big challenges and 
going through the process or the emotional process, the physical rigor, as well as all of the associated practical and professional rigor that comes with that. Maybe just tell us what it was like the morning of actually achieving the goal, Irwin. So what happened on that day? I know you have to, don't you leave the last base camp at 3am or something along those lines? Yeah. Yeah. You, so on the summer day, so you, we spent two nights just to paint a little bit of the picture here. Have we spent uh, two nights in camp four and camp four is at uh, 8,000 meters and uh, for Americans it's like, what is it? 26,000 feet. I think so. Yeah. Um, and so the being in camp four feels like being on the moon. I, if you see the pictures, it looks like a, a beautiful spot with great views, but that is not how you experience as a climber. Mm. It is windy, it's cold. And one of the things that was totally new for me is like climbing with supplemental oxygen. And although we were pretty well acclimatized, when you hit camp four, you have an uh, dependency to supplemental oxygen. And you, you will take your mask off for like for eating and drinking, uh, but you typically will not do it in more than five, six, seven minutes. And then you're very happy to get your oxygen mask on because you, you feel, you start to feel a little bit lightheaded. Uh, and so the, this, 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 this thing that you kind of live with an, uh, with an oxygen bottle and you sleep with an oxygen bottle, you hike with an oxygen bottle, you go to the restroom with an oxygen bottle. So you, you have this dependency on this, on this oxygen. And it, it really felt like a weird environment camp for almost nobody comes out of their tent and it's a yeah. You really are sleeping in a tent in a very hostile environment with your with your buddy, and uh, yeah, we were almost like lying in a sleeping bag for two days before the the climb started. I'm sure anybody who's done a big release of any system wouldn't recognize that kind of analogy for the night before go live, Erwin. <laughs> yes, and, and so you you wake up in the morning uh, on. I think we woke up at 11 a.m. Uh, p.m. Sorry, if I remember correctly, we left camp at uh, one. AM and it's um, getting out of the tent and getting ready was like, I felt I, w- I was, I wouldn't say pretty close, but it's, it's, it became very tempting to go back into my tent in camp on the morning of our summer climb because it was windy. It was snowing. I couldn't find my crampons because I left them outside the tent and it was, uh, it was some fresh snow was falling. So I had to start digging in to find my crampons uh, as well as my ice axe. And then uh, I, I, was, I had my big gloves on and I wasn't able to get my crampons on with my big gloves. So at one moment I was like, okay, I, I need to get them on. So I pulled them off. I had like thin liners under it, but immediately you feel your fingers starting to freeze. And then everybody around you is moving and shouting and making noises. And you, I felt that I was totally blowing it at that moment. And when I finally was on my, on my route to, uh, to the summit, you're aligned with the Sherpa on your summit climb. So you have a dedicated Sherpa who was amazing, by the way. And I would, and his name is Mingmar. I would never have made it to the summit without uh, Mingmar, but he is kind of yeah, like you're the person that stays with you. And he was really hurrying me. He was like, uh, and, and so I had the feeling that I was the last one coming out of camp. And, and then you get, hey, you're, you're, your voice in your head is like, oh man, if I'm not hitting certain milestones at certain time slots, maybe the guides will call me back. And and then I went through like seven weeks of suffering <laughs> for nothing because you're getting so close at that moment. And so I was trying to really push myself. And then finally, when the the had the in the on the day of the summit, and it's approximately eight hours from Camp Four to the summit, but halfway is one of the one of the moments that you can take a rest and you can take your backpack off. And the rest of the summit climb is kind of too steep to really take your backpack off, and so that point is called the balcony. It's a famous moment where everybody takes a break, and so uh, and I hit the balcony almost at the same time when uh, it became light, and, and then I realized that there was only like one climber in front of me. The rest was all behind me. And I was like pushing myself and ra- trying to race and it was stressed without any, uh, without any reason because everybody, even all the guides were behind me. And so I took a very long break on the balcony and that was kind of the first moment I started to really internalize what I was doing. Because the first four hours I was yeah, totally in myself uh, and trying to push myself as hard as possible. And then... And the light comes through and it's, it's, it's a, it's a, this weird emotion that 
you 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 really get the feeling that you do something very special at that moment, yeah, because you look around you and you see other eight thousand meter peaks like Lotsi and Makalu, like you know, you kind of are getting above of them, and you have an amazing view. But then you also in front of you see the 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 South Ridge going to the South Summit, and then where it really gets steep and sketchy, and so you also feel this like thing in your stomach is like, okay, now it's, 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 it becomes real. And also I, I really understood because I read books and I've talked to a lot of people that this is the part where any accident can be fatal. And uh, this is where they, this area, they call it the, the, the death zone. And unfortunately, and one of the traumatic experiences of Everest is that you see dead bodies. I was about to say, isn't isn't there frozen bodies of of, of yeah. previous climbers that have tried to go on this route and and not made it? Yes, exactly. And so you, this is the area where you're very conscious about, like, hey, even a small accident, like eh, like, and small accident would be like you you make a a fall, you're on fixed rope, and so when you fall, you will not fall into the into the valley, and you will you fall maybe a few feet or a few meters, but you will. You will be held by the rope, hopefully, but you can still injure yourself significantly. But this is an area where even breaking an, breaking an ankle is like an, a life-threatening injury. Right. Because the, the one thing that I, I didn't realize uh, is that at that altitude, like everybody is at his max. There is no slack with Sherpas, not really with yourself or Western guides. And so there is this, I think... Climbers could get the, the normalcy bias where because you are around other people mm. is that it feels maybe less risky as it is. The other aspect from what I've seen on documentaries of Everest in particular, th- there's like a line of people that are waiting to summit. And I think normalcy bias is a great phrase for that particular situation because actually almost at its most dangerous, you get a sense that you're in a queue of people uh, waiting and you have to keep your wits about you, presumably. Yeah, 100%. And so the, I, I saw also some of uh, the climbers in my team that were like, they, it just felt that they didn't realize how dangerous it was what we were doing. And how the how risky it is just to be on that altitude, and that if something happens to you, there is no cavalry. Like if you are not able to catch yourself down yourself, and so you you're not able to walk yourself down, and certainly if you're like a, a larger or heavier person, yeah, it's it takes like four to eight people to get one person down at that altitude. How much contingency have you got on the oxygen? When you when you're up, so you saw you get to this uh, camp for you say the oxygen timer starts. Ticking. Yeah. You can't do without it. Like a real resource is burning down in the background as you're going up. What, what's the leeway on the amount of oxygen you've got? Yeah, you you have a, a little bit leeway, but it's um, you're not able. This is the something that I also didn't understand. I would I, I, would, I learned a lot from that. Is that you also have to plan where you put your bottles. So it's not possible. And so you have technically uh, four oxygen bottles for our climb. We had uh, four bottles. Yeah. Um, but you cannot bring four bottles to the summit. So they get stashed at certain points. So you really have to plan just to be, be back at one of those milestone points in time to refresh your oxygen. And it's a great point uh, uh, because that's, I was, uh, so we, we hit the summit and I, it was like, we had such a luck with our, our day. It was a beautiful day. There was almost no wind. So I, we were sitting on the summit for almost an hour and a half. And then, and I didn't realize it, but uh, Mingmar, my Sherpa, was became very nervous, and he was hurrying me. And I had some, I had in my head like, "Hey, I'm only on my second bottle of oxygen. I'm on the summit. Uh, we have we have uh, this beautiful weather. There's no rush. Like we we can take the whole day to get down in Camp Four, and it was still, I would say, late morning at that moment. And then I realized that my next oxygen bottle was stashed on the balcony. <laughs> so I. Uh, although I had technically enough bottles, I had not any bottles close by. So it, it meant at the end that I had to rush myself down to the balcony and I was there in time, but it's, it, it's, it's a, it was more stress than I was hoping for at that moment. Just before we finish the, tell us a little bit about before you got onto realizing you'd nearly run out of oxygen on the top, which <laughs> doesn't sound great, but what was that feeling of accomplishment like? And 
What was your view like on that day? I was not really able to internalize it at that moment, I think. I was, um, that internalization probably came later. And because, again, I was, I was, I was very focused, very tense is maybe a different way to say it, but I, I had, I was not confused that being on the summit is being, is like your, is a final achievement. I was concerned about getting myself down to camp four and then getting back to base camp. Uh, I knew that this was literally hallway and I had that pretty clearly painted in my mind. In hindsight, to be honest, I, I wish that I was a little bit more more in the moment on the summit as well as the summit mm. climb. Because one of the things that I realized later is that I almost made no pictures. I, I was so focused on, on, on going up and down that I didn't even stop to, uh, to make pictures. And I was very lucky that, again, Ningmar had a camera and he made a number of pictures of me. That's kind of the memories that I have of that day. Because I, for myself, I didn't even, it even didn't stop or come into my, uh, yeah, I didn't really realize that this was a one-time moment and a one-time experience. So, Erwin, I suppose when you're young, you don't think, I'm off to climb Everest. It's not the sort of thing that occurs to you. But over your life, it sounds like you got to a position where it became something that you want to do through shared experience, growing through talking and working with others in the mountaineering arena. Can you just track your journey to getting to the decision to say, I'm going to do this? Because it's something you have to train so hard for and it takes so much effort. You know, What led you to that decision that said, I'm going to do this? So the, the thing is that for me, although I always was fascinated by Everest as a child, I read books, I watched movies, this was never really something that was in my in my to-do list till maybe two, three years ago. And the where I really start to consider it. And and then I, I think two two things were important here. And one is that I would even say that if you would have asked me 10 years ago, do you want to climb Everest? I would have probably left in your face. And I I was lucky that I met people in the last years. Uh, in the around in the Seattle area where I live, that one is an experienced mountain guide who has climbed Everest now thirteen times, who became a friend, and a few other people that really helped me to understand what it takes to do an adventure like this or an expedition, but also the steps in preparation that you needed to get there, and and I think this is such an important point eh, because you 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 can't achieve in life what you can't see. And I think we, it's, it's, it's very true for people that grow up in, uh, in maybe less privileged environments is that if you don't have a role model that shows you the path or shows you the way, it's, it's very hard to get there because you don't even know the first step to take. And I think that I was, I was really lucky with uh, getting people in my life that, that showed how I could get there. And that gave me the confidence that this is an adventure I could, I could take on. Because climbing Everest was not like the had the most uh, evident thing for me to do in life. Like I, I, I had cancer twice. My hips are uh, completely wear and tear. I, I, I've done now one hip operation. I'm waiting for the second hip operation. I have some ingestion issues that I need uh, prescriptions for every single day. So I, it's it's clearly I'm not in like an, and I'm I'm also like an older person. So it's not like the most typical thing I would think about. Uh, and I. I, the fact that I had these examples, it's, it really gave me this, it, it helped me ask this question, like, why not me? And why could I not do something like this? And that gave me this, this energy, like, hey, I can do something that I never thought I was, would be able to do before. And now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to focus, I'm going to train, I'm going to really prepare myself to, uh, to get there. And, uh, and, and make this like a uh, goal for a certain time of, in my life. Um, and I, it's probably one of the things I'm, I'm trying to also teach my children is that is you use mentors and coaches in your life. And don't try to do everything by yourself, but there is such a value of mentors, coaches, and other people that can help you understand the steps and or maybe can help open doors for you that would be closed if you don't leverage people around you. Schauk, 
we've been looking at this week. So each week I do some research on related ideas and transformation in tech. And this week I thought we should take a look at why you should organize your change initiatives around purpose and benefits. So if there's one thing that's certain about the future, it's that change is here to stay. The ability to constantly transform has become a top priority for many organizations. And this makes change management an essential business priority now. However, the failure rates of change products remain high, with only 31% considered successful. So to address this, change management needs to be approached in a different way with a focus on purpose and benefits. So projects that are linked to a higher purpose have a higher chance of success and the benefits should be identified and mapped out for each key stakeholder early in the transformation. And by adopting new concepts like purpose and benefits, organizations can create value much faster and more easily develop change and project management competencies. So a question, do you think aligning change management to purpose and benefits will increase success? I'll have a first go at that. Certainly benefit. I mean, benefits, I think, speak for themselves and they should be tracked. They should be rigorous and you should be able to account for the money and time spent in terms of deliverable, whether that be return on investment or whether that be delivered product or, or function point or whatever, whatever it might be. So benefits, I think, to me is, uh, is an obvious one. Purpose, however, uh, I think map very clearly to that conversation and that analogy, because in, in my mind, a lot of people forget that in a rush to create business case, which is a benefit, they forget the important aspect of, well, why are we doing this thing in the first place? I mean, Erwin, as we discussed in the conversation, it seemed like, you know, the purpose for what you guys were doing was maybe blindingly obvious because you were trying to get to the top. But what was the other elements of purpose going on in that adventure for you? I think the climbing Everest isn't a pretty equalistic thing to do. If you think about it, like it's, it's not, it's, it's, it's you, you, it's a, it's a self-fulfilling thing. Yeah. I, yeah. Uh, and clearly there's say uh, you could make the argument that you help the local economy and you help the local people. And it's absolutely true because uh, the, there's a lot of people in Nepal that live from Everest climbs. And so there's an, a lot of contribution that you make, but at the end it's the, the, the purpose for me was, I think, and this, by the way, this is one of the hardest questions to answer. And the hardest question for me to answer is like, why did you do it? Right. It seems like one of the obvious ones to ask, but one of the hardest ones to answer. It's one of the obvious <laughs> to ask yourself, but it's very hard because it's really a combination of one is like, it's a, it's a beautiful adventure. And there are a lot of aspects around it that's a beautiful exp- adventure that you just want to experience. I, I also think there is an, an element of like proving yourself to yourself about creating like an, 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 a relatively absurd goal and seeing if you can make it and getting yourself in that, in that situation. And there, and, and probably the underlying reason that you want to do that for yourself is probably, uh, like maybe partly uncertainties, maybe partly imposter syndrome. Uh, I think there's all kind of like complexity of elements as a human that you want to prove to yourself that you would be capable of doing something. Did you find though that those thoughts sustained you in the difficult moments? So for example, in terms of Schalke's question around, you know, is purpose something viable that's going to accelerate or drive your change more successfully? You know, in that case, it like unifies a team, shows a direction, actually gives you a higher reason for do something than just purely the underlying financial, which some people find very motivating, but other people sort of more struggle with from a motivational perspective. Did you find that some of those elements that you just described sustained you on the journey and kept you focused? Yeah, 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 absolutely. And 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 I think one of the elements of, of purpose for me was that also showing my, and, and, and maybe most important for me was my children. Uh, but I think I, I got feedback from a lot of people around me saying that it was demonstrating that with focus and effort, human beings can reach a lot. And, and so I, I wanted to, the purpose for me was like, I, and that was one of my motivations, to be honest, to keep going and make it to the summit. Because I, I really wanted to show my children also is that, hey, your, your old man 
can, with the right uh, investment in time and uh, with resilience, can do something special. So never, never hold yourself back in life. Never think that there are things that you cannot do or cannot achieve. Rob, didn't you say that um, that's what you said to your kids just before you started Red Dead Redemption 2? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, David. Set the goals appropriately. However, what you have just said uh, reminds me of the famous JFK quote, we choose to go to the moon not because it is easy, but because it is hard. And it's about that right stuff, isn't it? You've got the the right stuff to do it, but you also need the preparation to be able to be ready to be able to do it as well. So resonates a lot with me, what you just said. Quite so. Well, look, Erwin, thank you so much for spending some time with us this afternoon. I mean, a, a massively inspirational story, not only in terms of what you achieved, but also in terms of some of those underlying uh, reasons for doing it. And hopefully everyone's taken away from it, not only a great story, but actually there's just so much about human resilience and, and taking on large tasks and, working your way through something and having a clear direction that can be applied to business life and the sort of challenges that we have in the ever-changing world in which we practice. Awesome. So thank you again for your time. It's been brilliant talking to you, a real privilege. Awesome. Hey, it was uh, very happy to, uh, to be here and thank you for having me. So we end every episode of this podcast by asking our guest what they're excited about doing next. And that could be... Climbing uh, Everest again? Another mountain, <laughs> bigger one. K2 maybe yeah, next time, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or it could be uh, something you're doing in your professional life. So Erwin, what are you excited about doing next? Yeah, I'm a, uh, I'm a positive person that always finds uh, exciting uh, things to do in my life. There's two things I'm excited now to... Uh, uh, so we're moving to, uh, we're in the process of moving to Tampa. So I'm excited to uh, start a life here with my, with, uh, with my family. And so total new environment. Uh, so we'll have absolutely things that we need to figure out here, but it will be a, a great, a great opportunity and uh, a lot of fun. And secondly, I also started a new role in uh, in Microsoft recently uh, that also has like a significant amount of challenges and opportunities. So two things that I'm I'm really excited about and looking forward to. Fantastic. Well, look, we wish you all the very best with both of those upcoming new challenges. And Schalke has also just moved house recently, and that felt like Everest, didn't it, Schalke? Yeah, it, it did. Yeah, it was not Tampa, but Lisa, but it it did. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, let's hope it goes more straightforwardly for you, Erwin. Yeah. Well, by the way, Dave, if you would have asked me this question yesterday, I would have said I'm also very excited about the new football season. But the the Seahawks lost terribly last night. So I'm... <laughs> You've got dimmed enthusiasm now. <laughs> yes. Uh, it's, it's not top of my mind at this moment about <laughs> in, uh, things to be excited about. So a huge thanks to our guest this week. Erwin, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks also to our sound and editing wizards, Ben and Louis, our distracted producer, Marcel, and of course, to all of our listeners. We're on LinkedIn and X, Dave Chapman, Rob Kernahan, and Xiao Kizal. Feel free to follow or connect with us, and please get in touch if you have any comments or ideas for the show. And of course, if you haven't already done that, rate and subscribe to our podcast. See you in another reality next week. <laughs>